to the Mastering the Mind podcast. Today we welcome our 14th guest to the podcast. His name is Stephen Kirby. Stephen is an academy football coach at Leicester City's under-18s team and has 18 years of coaching experience. Stephen has various experience working in elite football, having previously worked at MK Dons from 2011 to 2012 as their football development manager and as the lead youth development phase coach. In 2016, Stephen then was at Leicester City FC, under-15s and under-16s coach. Stephen also has experience coaching abroad in summer camps in America. So let's welcome Stephen to the podcast. I've been in at the, at the training ground today. We had a... Um... We had a few players um, that are in a much smaller group. Um, some are with the some are with the first team training. Some are away in Scotland with the under twenty threes on on their training um, on their training camp. So we just had a, a small group session this morning. Uh, and I've just I've literally just made it home in time. <laughs> I wasn't nice. I wasn't sure whether I was. I've got quite a lengthy commute. It's kind of two hours. So oh wow, I've got to I've got to time it right if I'm leaving work or or or, or not leaving work, but. I, Thankfully, I've timed it perfect. That's committed to the job. That is two hour, two hour commute. But, yeah, it's a, it's a but, long one. Where are you based? Yeah. So home is a little place called um, Ledbury in Herefordshire. Okay, no, uh, not not familiar. So if you imagine Gloucester, Worcester, Hereford, it's kind of in the centre of that that triangle of okay of uh, of, of cities. Oh, fair enough. Um, but yeah, obviously we, we've had a chat prior uh, from our project, but um, yeah. so what we do with our guests to sort of start off with is um, if you were to take us through your career chronologically, like if we start from the start, what would that look like in terms of your coaching career growing up, um, why you got into coaching, things like that? Yeah, sure. So um, I got into coaching by accident, really. Um, <laughs> When I first started, so this would have been 2004. Um, uh, a friend of mine who's a couple of years older was was working for for Arsenal Soccer Schools, um, a little a little franchise base in in, in the area. Um, so he was working with a, with another guy doing that, and it came round to the kind of summer months, and uh, and they were hosting holiday courses, and and I was look, just looking for work. I think I was 17 at the time, so. I was enjoying my summer and and we kind of got talking about it and he said why don't you come down and have a look so I went down a few times and and, and volunteered for a little bit and I was kind of refereeing the, the the games and the tournaments on a on a on a holiday course and I just loved it I just loved it from then so then I started working for Arsenal soccer schools um more regularly and then um after that I heard about going to go into the US to do to do football camps over there so that's 2005 and 2006 I spent both of my summers um, in California of, of all places wow. okay <laughs> for, for kind of seven to nine weeks at a time um, with a company called UK international soccer camps um, and that was great because that was my first taste of of coaching every day. We would go Monday to Friday and and then clinics on a on a Saturday and then move base and, and head to a new place on the on the Sunday ready for the next week. So that was my first taste of of coaching daily. And then after completing completing that in both the summers, that's where I thought, okay, well, I wonder if I can make this as a career. Yeah. <laughs> this, this idea of getting paid to coach daily 
is 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 perfect. It's uh, exactly what I want to do. Um, it's the next best thing to play in. My my thoughts of of playing professionally were were, were way gone by then. That that wasn't going to happen. Um, so I thought this is the next best thing. This is this is this is great. Um, so then my friend who was working for Arsenal Soccer School set up his own his own independent company. Um, and that, that grew massively. We, we were doing things like the school coaching, the holiday coaching, all the community-based stuff um, around, around the area that I live. And I did that for, for three years till about 2008. And then at that point, the company that I was working for was taken on by Hereford United to set up their community scheme. So effectively take all of our contacts, all of the schools and, and the kids that we were working with that come and work for, come and do it as Hereford United um, when they were Hereford United before they before they um, expanded and became Hereford FC, so we went in and did that, and um, that was till about 2011, 2008 to 2011, and then and then 2011 I moved on and moved to to Milton Keynes initially in the in the community trust there, the sport and education trust there. Um, I took on a role as football development manager, which was essentially managing all the programs that lead up to the academy. So that was things like a 16s to 19s college program at a, at a school, which was sort of the, the, an academy shadow squad for, for older age groups. That was managing the development centres, advanced centres, um, taking those groups on tours and, 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 and things like that. All the things surrounded with that. And then in 2012, the, the new EPPP rules sort of came yeah. in, I think it was like the October of 2012 and uh, and the role as lead youth development phase came up in, in the academy at Milton Keynes. So um, so I, I got that I got that role, I took that role and then I was in that role until until 2016. Um, I joined literally at the, I joined Leicester literally at the same time. It was a couple of days after um, Chelsea had beaten or drew with Tottenham, that, that, so Leicester won the league. Oh, yeah. So I joined literally within a space of a couple of days of, of that happening, um, wow. which was an amazing experience. Um, my first game watching watching Leicester was the game where they picked up the trophy, Bacelli on the pitch, everything going crazy. It was <laughs> so uh, so that was that was perfect timing, and I've, and that was originally as a as an under 15s coach for. A few months, and then there was a, there was a few um, a few staff members moved on that way, and that that made the opening for my current role as 18s assistant. And that's where I've sort of been been since, really. Speaking of Leicester winning the league, I remember that day like it was yesterday. Obviously, being a Leicester lad, uh, unfortunately, <laughs> I'm not not a Leicester fan. But um, I remember it was my birthday when it happened. I was out for my birthday meal in town, and I just remember coming out, obviously seeing Hazard score that goal, and. Yeah. It was just like horns down Narb Road, like near the stadium. Yeah, and yeah. Uh, it was going manic. It was uh, unbelievable to see. And then like everyone like traveling into town, like obviously to get uh, drunk in that. Oh, it was class. Um, yeah, what an experience. But obviously like being a part of Leicester now, what is that like? Because I imagine, because it's such a well-run club. Um, I feel like it's the best run club in the Premier League at the moment. What is it like being involved within that um, sort of environment? It, it is it is how you... Uh... It is how you see it publicly, really. In fact, it's it's better than you, better than you probably see publicly. Um, 
the owners and 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 the board and everything are, uh, are fantastic. The way they run the way they run the club in in so many different um, across so many different areas. Um, I've not I've not had a bad time in the whole time that I've that I've sort of been at at Leicester, and that's with a, a multitude of managers as well. So Ranieri, uh, Craig Shakespeare, Buell, and and then the current the current management with Brendan and his team is. Yeah. Is is fantastic. Um, so yeah, it 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 really is as you uh, as you see it. We're we're at the brand new training facility, which is which is out of this world. It's it's just a kind of a pinch yourself moment every now and again when you're when you're out. You're training on the pitch and you you finish your session and or you, or you sort of in between things in the session and you just kind of take a glance back at yourself and and the buildings there and and the and the indoor centres there and. It's an amazing place. It's an amazing place. So, it's. It, I would agree with you. I've I've not come across a better a better run run club to be honest in in in, in my time. Yeah. That's that may be a bit biased, but it's it's fantastic. I think Leicester's sort of everyone's second team at the moment. Um, yeah. You can see how well run it is from top to bottom, and the fact they've invested in that training ground. I think that's it's going to boost them even more. Obviously, I think that's such a big pull factor. Obviously. You're training there all the time and you're there every day. I think when players see how it's like picturesque, like looking at it from the outside, um, going and going and training there every day would be unreal. But obviously yeah, it's, just so, it's just so inspiring. You can't, yeah. you can't help but just walk around and be, and be inspired, especially. And there's, there's, there's lots of people um, like myself there that started out in a real humble surroundings. So my first session was on a, sand-based astroturf the first ever coaching yeah. session that i took was on a sand-based astroturf at my old high school yeah so to to think about that journey and and stuff and have offices in porter cabins and and things like that and then to to be able to have the privilege of of, of working in in that current facility is yeah like i said it's just it's just pinch yourself moments at times just to just to check where you are and, and be thankful of where you are you know yeah, it's fantastic. You, you couldn't ask for for a better facility and a, and a better place to to kind of play your trade, so to speak. Yeah. So you talk about obviously being under the different managers like Ranieri, Puel, uh, Brendan Rogers. Um, this you, you're the first coach we've had on. We've had a lot of athletes come on, but you're the first coach. Um, and I know on these coaching courses they bang on about uh, the coaching philosophy. So I'm interested to see. What is your coaching philosophy? What do you value? What's your purpose as a coach? And also, when you were figuring out your coaching philosophy, were there any other coaches that inspired you or you tried to like emulate? Obviously, I know that Pep has had a huge influence over English football. Um, but yeah, if you could sort of give an insight into that. Yeah, sure. So I think I've, I've, this has been an evolving process for a long period of time to get to this point. And I think... If you ask me the same question in five years' time, I would probably want it to look or sound differently again because yeah. if, if, it, if it didn't, then I may have not have evolved so much. So mm. uh, as it is currently, it's kind of just based around two things and, and with two things being separate in terms of coaching philosophy and playing style, playing philosophy, those things being quite separate because sometimes I think they can be, they can be joined together yeah. Um, but in in my eyes, my coaching philosophy is is centered around two things, and it's 
I work with people who play football, not football players. Um, and for me, coaching in general in any sport or in in life coaching or whatever, coaching is is leading uh, a player to a place or a level that they wouldn't have been able to get there themselves. So for me, in essence, that is that is coaching, and that is that is my my philosophy. And the better that I can do that, the better the better job I think I've done when um, when it comes to working with those players. Do you have more of like a autocratic style or democratic style? Would you say? Do you kind of let the your players make the decisions, or do you kind of tell them what to do? I'm more of a let them do it first. Let them do it first, and then, and then um, correct or guide as um, as necessary. Just for the simple fact that um, when you, as a human being, when you get stuff right, when you figure out stuff yourself, it's so much more self fulfilling. It's it's it drives uh, intrinsic motivation. So if you try and correct too early, I think you sometimes maybe lose lose the chance to. Uh, to do that, and and as we know, everybody's working and, and developing and uh, improving at, at, at different speeds in their yeah. in their in their lives in their development. So I'm that way because of because of that because I think that's just the the best way and the most fulfilling way and the best way to to cement any learning. Yeah, hundred um, percent. So obviously we had that great chat about. Um, the psychological demands and, uh, and what you expect of players, what, what attributes you look for. And I think uh, one of the reasons why I wanted to get you on was because for a lot of our academy listeners, this will be great for them to hear what a coach looks for psychologically from players. Because I feel like a lot of them develop these technical and physical attributes where sometimes psychologically they're lacking. Mm -hmm. uh, so we had a really great conversation. So sort of as an overall, um, what are the most important psychological attributes or qualities you feel make a successful footballer or you would look for if you're a professional coach looking down into the academy? Yeah, so since our, since our prior conversation, I try to um, drill it down a little bit, make it a little bit slicker. And I think there's so many yeah. for, um, for, for first, first things first. There's so many, but in terms of my preferences and, and what I think works well for players progressing through. Um, the first one would be resilience. And, and more so, I know that's quite a broad broad topic, a broad word that sometimes can get thrown about. But what I mean by resilience is just that ability to take or react to uh, positively in a negative scenario. Yeah. So when you hit with a negative, can you react with a positive? Um, the reason why I feel that's, that's important for, for young players, young, young athletes in terms of going through would be you're always going to have to react to defeat. You're always going to have to react to non-selection. Um, you're always going to have to react to public and private criticism. Um, and you're always going to make mistakes. So for me, it's, it's, it's a non-avoidable and, and thinking that you will avoid those things as you go through, for me, isn't 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 really realistic. So, I think you have to prepare yourself that, that those things will will happen, and they're uh, they're kind of a known demand of of, of the game, you know. Um, I mean, look at our 
look at our current England players, there's a selection of those that three weeks ago were, were lauded. Mm. Three weeks later, they're, they're hounded and abused. Yeah. And that's, that's, a, that's a hard thing to, to deal with, you know? So, unfortunately, that, that's obviously the most extreme example. But those things, those things will happen. So that's why I'm thinking that resilience is, is one of the major ones. Um, my second one will probably be self-honesty and, 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 and identity okay. in, terms of, in terms of knowing yourself, knowing your identity, knowing the player that you want to be, the type of person you want to be, what you want to be known for and, 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 and thought about for. Um, with that in mind, I think you've, you've got to know that and you have to be on the flip side, open-minded to, to other people's uh, beliefs. Uh, and 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 their thoughts and their advice because sometimes that that may be good advice coming from a great place it might be bad advice but still coming from a great place <laughs> mm, um, yeah. so then you've got to develop this this filter to be able to understand what you think is good advice what can you adapt and, and incorporate into into your own game what's going to be helpful for your for your own game but still being your game yeah. and still be and still being being yourself i mean an example of that is probably with, as we discussed before, maybe if, you, if you're a dribbler, if, you, if you're a wide man who's a little bit of a dribbler, you may come across um, coaches or other teammates or sometimes even other parents and, and, and things that are, are telling you not to dribble, not to dribble, don't take so many touches. Don't now, you have to be open-minded a little bit in terms of if you're always given the ball that you might need to do something slightly better to make mm. you a better dribbler. But sometimes it can go the other way where it forces you not to dribble and then you, you lose your best weapon. Yeah. You know, so it's trying to, that balance, trying to get that balance between knowing yourself but being open-minded to, to others. Yeah. It was like when, when Ronaldo first came to United and he was like coming in and doing all the tricks and that was sort of his identity. He was a skillful player. But... He was doing a bit too much, and Alex here he was open-minded enough to know he needed to improve. And Alex Ferguson made him a bit more, a bit more efficient. Uh, knew when to release the ball. That was sort of the things he added to his game. And now, obviously, you see what he's gone on to do. So yeah, it's definitely a key sort of psychological attribute that I think is key to making it the professional game and sort of evolving your game as well. Yeah, absolutely. So you hear the stories and 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 the interviews about about Ronaldo and his time at Man United and, and, and the players whacking him in training and and, yeah. and everything. And so he probably he had a choice at that point. Does he does he play safe and, and lend it off quickly? Or does he do something different to be a better dribbler? Mm. And thankfully he took the second route and, and we've managed to enjoy the, the years of wonderful, wonderful football that he's produced since then, you know? Yeah. So are they sort of the main two for you in in terms of what you'd look for? Yeah, the third the third would be would be centered around emotional control, really. Again, like the like the resilience factor, it's understanding what the known demands of, of the game are gonna be. And I'd say emotional control because you're always gonna have to deal with with pressure, pressure from from your own staff, pressure from people within the club, boards of directors, etc., your your teammates, the fans. Um Along with that pressure comes comes expectation, especially if you're um, you're a young player on the crest of a wave and you have a high flying start and the expectation of you rises and, and the media blow out of proportion and things like that. And then when you have a little dip, which is which is which is natural and normal, 
Um, how much of a dip is it? How much does it affect you? How much do you kick on again after that? Mm. Um, and and the fear factor, the fear factor of of, of failing, letting yeah. people down, um, not looking your best, not getting to where you want to get to. Um, so I think emotional control would 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 be one of the key factors in that in terms of dealing with 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 those moments. Yeah, no, hundred percent. So you spoke about those skillful players and the fact that, that they need to be able to sort of be open-minded enough, but also know their identity. Um, do any other psychological attributes differ across positions? So for our academy listeners, um, we're going to have like different positions listening. So your goalkeepers, your defenders, your midfielders, your attackers. Do those psychological attributes differ? Would you look for different attributes in different positions? Um, so say for a goalkeeper listening, what would you look for in a goalkeeper? I think... I think those things would stay the same. Yeah. Would stay the same per position. I just think that they manifest themselves in um, in, in different ways. So, for example, a goalkeeper might be um, he's a ball playing goalkeeper. So he's going to run the risk of losing possession sometimes, and yeah. he may make mistakes that that give that give to goals. Now he's going to have to have that that conversation within himself to decide. Do I continue to be like this? Am I, am I good enough to continue to, to be like this? Or am I going to make mistakes regularly to do this, which is then going to stop me being picked for the team or giving away goals, etc. So it's the same the same concept, the same qualities, but just the, the context and, and the scenario manifests itself differently. Yeah. Same as if you're an attacking wing-back instead of a traditional full-back, you know? Um, same if you're a ball playing centre half rather than a traditional head and kick it centre half, mm. you know. Yeah, definitely. I I, I can see that uh, for sure. Okay, so um, so sort of delved into it overall, but obviously in our prior conversation we delved into some specific scenarios. Um, I think it's important as well because sometimes players don't realise the body language that they're letting off can really change their coach's opinion of of that player. Um, and sort of whether they're going to drag them or, or things that they don't look for, you know? Um, yeah. So when your team's behind, so they go 1-0 down, what do you look for in your players' behaviours and, and body language? And, and what psychologically do you want from your players in that scenario? Yeah, so uh, at, that, at that point, at that point when that, when that happens, I'm looking for, um, like I said before, players to react positively. And, and what I mean, what I mean by that is that they do things such as get the ball quickly. They're they're walking to the kickoff with, with chests out, chins up. Mm-hmm. Um, the communication that's going on is is fairly positive and encouraging, rather than um, rather than damning and, and finger pointing. Um, because, I, like I said, I think that's that. When you're in that negative scenario, that's the positive reaction that's gonna that's gonna help you. Being more negative in the negative scenario probably gets you negative outcome. Yeah. So those are sort of the the key things. Players showing belief to themselves. Players showing belief to the opposition that look, you may have scored, but we're, but we're not done yet. Mm. Because it, when it, when you work at it the other way, if you look at it from the from the flip side, if you're the team that have just scored. And you look around, and the opposition are on their knees, they're flat out on the floor, they're pointing and blaming. Your initial thought is is definitely going to be around, right? We've got them. 
we've got them they're, they're done they've gone yeah yeah it sounds like body language is the key that from what you're describing and i feel like it's something that a lot of academy players or young players forget about it's so underrated i, I feel like and there's actually a lot of research in psychology and sports psychology to show that body language can actually affect your position. So even before you step on the field, if you display a positive and open body language, that can, you know, make the other team think, okay, this team is confident. So yeah, really interesting point you said there. Yeah, yeah definitely. Yeah, as a striker myself, uh, I think my sort of body language lets me down. Do you know when I've missed a couple of chances and, and things like that and yeah. I start losing my head a little bit? I think if I was able to control my body language, defenders wouldn't be able to play on me as much. Um, so, yeah, no, body language is so important, especially in the, in, in the current game. And sort of not allowing your opponent to have that edge on you. Um, for sure. it just, I think it just gives the, gives the game away. And yeah. I think biologically as well and... and um, if you just if you just go from the position that you're in and think chest up chin out, you just it automatically drives a little bit of a of a of a, of a change of um, thought. So if you can have the um, have the ability to control that and think with that clarity in those in those moments, I definitely think it helps. And you look at other sports with uh, with golfers. I, I know Tiger Woods was was a famous one in terms of walking over the line after after a shot um so that's moved on he's gone to the next one um there's lots of those different different um scenarios and i i, I think they're extremely helpful yeah i think a key one was when england went one nil down uh, i think it was against denmark and we you saw people like harry kane harry Maguire, sort of their body language was reassuring to me as a fan yeah. that we're not out of this I, I feel like they were stay calm they stay composed stick to the game plan and they knew that they were, they were going to get the result at the end of the game. So that was reassuring for me as a, as a fan. So it must have been reassuring for Gareth. <laughs> um, if, you look, if you look at it in like uh, any any form of any walk of life, I know I'm going to make this analogy, but it's obviously not as serious in the context. If, if you came across somebody who had come across somebody unconscious and was delivering first aid, if they were scatty and didn't know what they were doing, they wouldn't fill you with much confidence if they were no. calm and methodical and, and and even look like even if they're like the swan on the water where the feet where the feet are kicking um, like mad underneath but they look calm yeah it resonates calm amongst amongst everybody else you know so I think the same same thing obviously not as extreme yeah. but the same thing happens in those moments of uh, those real down moments in the game mm. where if you can resonate that calm and again as the coach on the side as well. If the if the tactics pad is getting thrown around, the bottles are getting kicked, I'm I'm not sure that it resonates. Lads, yeah. stay calm, we've got this, don't worry. I don't yeah. think it sends that message. You know, at half time, so let's say we let's put you in the scenario. So you've just the, the opposition scored like at the 43rd, 44th minute, and it's half time and you all go to the dressing room. What are you looking for in your players at that time, like sitting on the in the dressing room, what I think, what I think is is healthy at that point, just because of the fact that it's it's out of eyes of everybody else. I don't think there's too much of a problem if the first minute or two, because the players are probably going to get in potentially before you as well. So, for me, it's not a problem if at that point, for that first minute or two, it's just people venting frustrations. Yeah. 
But then from there, I think then your role as the coach is, look, let's take a couple of deep breaths. That's now been and gone. All right, we can't change it. What we what we are in control of is what happens in the next forty five minutes. Yeah. So then, if you can quickly shift focus in, into what we do next, then that might be making changes, change the uh, change the shape, etc., change personnel, change change style, or, or whatever it is. You can mm-hmm. quickly. Everybody's had their chance to vent, and then and then you've cut a like I said, an imaginary line. With yeah. with that being gone, now you can look forwards because what you do next is is going to be is going to determine whether it's a a concrete outcome or not it's just this is where we are halfway through the game we have now a choice to try and do something about it in Mm. in 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 the second half so that it's not the outcome that we're in at the minute yeah 100% I think uh, for for any um, academy listeners um, I think a good thing to delve into is the training environment so we spoke about this um, in our previous conversation but um, I think letting them know what you value uh, in a training environment to keep because when I was coaching at Solio Moors, I found that the player that actually made it to the first team was the player that helps pack up after training. He, he listened effectively. He had great input um, when the coach allowed for some ownership over, over tactics and things like that. Um, whereas the players who had that huge egos and sort of just like left as soon as training ended, didn't help pack up. Um, very rarely communicated with the coaches and, or teammates. Uh, they were the lads who didn't make it, despite being possibly technically better. Um, so, so what do you value on the training ground um, for, from your players? And what sort of behaviours would you want them to conduct? Yeah, in, in, the, in the, easiest, the easiest way to put it would be to try and do everything like you would do in the game. Yeah. Try and play it like you like you would play in the game because I do I firmly believe that the closer you can get that the um, the the more improvement the closer and the more often you do that the more improvement you do get individually and collectively they kind of without separating the two they they drive they drive each other defenders get better because the attackers are uh, are, are at speed with their with what they're doing vice versa attackers get better because the defenders are sharp to the to the ball and getting close and making tackles, so it it has to look as near to the to the game as possible in terms of the in terms of the the speed of things happening and uh, and the time that players have to make decisions. Um, yeah. And the more you can do that, the 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 better. However, that's that's in that's in the best case possible. I'm saying, however, though, because I've seen players that wouldn't train necessarily well with, with within an 18 session, get the call up to 23s or, or, or even first team that day or the next day and then perform at the level where you would like them to perform at 18s. Yeah. Different factor being the, the training environment doesn't drive that just simply because of the level of the player. That are either, they, don't, they don't feel as comfortable as they do in their own age group maybe and obviously they've got First team established pros that have won league titles and and, and, and things like that, that that they're playing with. It's it's their idols, so so there's more of that wanting to impress factor. Um, so, but I think the the gamble and the danger of of being like that, only performing when you need to, is that 
the jump is then really high. Yeah. The, the jump that you're giving yourself is, is really high and I've seen players go across and then be okay for one session, but after a week, 10 days, two weeks, break down because their bodies aren't used to training at, at that level for, for that period of time. So yeah. if you're going to stay there and stick there, then I think you give yourself a better chance if you're if you're training at a high level more often within mm. within your whether that's in your own sessions in in the age group above or, or ultimately within the first team environment. Yeah. Another point that Oli and myself discussed quite a lot was the role of a captain. So for you, what kind of attributes do you kind of psychological attributes do you kind of look for in a captain? And do you think it has evolved from 10 years ago, maybe? Yeah, I think, um, and I think the perception of good captains is is evolving as well. In my own perception um, has evolved as well. I mean, maybe a year ago, I would have given you a different answer. Um, I probably would have been more about the traditional loudspeaking person who commands and, 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 and dominates things. <laughs> but... Since that time, I've um, I've read a book called The Captain Class by Sam Walker. This is class. <laughs> it's it's fantastic. It's it's completely changed my my thinking about um, captains and and their um, and their effect on 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 the teams. And in a nutshell, Sam and his team do do a study over the most successful teams and and their captains across sports over kind of even the last hundred years. So they've got baseball teams in like the, the 1920s and things like that, all the way up to like um, <clears throat> the Chicago Bulls basketball side, the Man United team under Roy Keane, the the uh, the Barca team under Pep and Puyol and, and the New Zealand All Blacks. So they've gone through all these teams and, and rated them into uh, into tiers, tier one to tier four. And <clears throat> and actually the tier, the tier one captains were probably not your archetypical traditional um, people that you would have said, okay, they're the captain. Um, some of the traits that they shared were, were they were actually really, really quiet as people. Yeah. Um, they weren't the, the big resounding speech like you might see in the movies that are, that are getting the team together. Yeah. They, they weren't necessarily those guys. They led a lot by, they led a lot by their actions rather than their words. Um, one of the other key traits were they weren't ever the best player on the team. So I've had that idea before that you give it to the best player, the best player leads by example, everybody follow, et cetera, et cetera. However, he's the best player because for a reason, just because he's the captain isn't going to make necessarily everybody at his level. And sometimes some others can be quite in awe of that person. Mm. You know, if they're the best player and they're the best captain, and they get the most attention. People, people can be either in awe or resentful. So, I'm not sure that at times that that creates the cohesion that that you want. Um, and this this book and the study in this book would would suggest the the same. That's that's where I've um, where I've thought about it. And the other key traits were that these people weren't necessarily. Um, whiter than white in terms of never break the rules and things like that. So Carlos Puyo was one of the tier one captains and they would allude to times in the book where he would shirts, get sent off, whatever he thought he could in 
at the, at the time of and within the context to win the game because the other trait was that they would do anything possible to win the game even if that meant bending the rules um, mm. they alluded to Richie McCaw making a trip when somebody was coming out of a of a scrum in the last minute of a, of a, of a rugby test match um, yeah. so they weren't necessarily the, the super sportsman like people um, another tier one captain was was Tim Duncan from the San Antonio Spurs in, in, in their successful era. And people would describe him as not talking, would say man of very few words in, in terms of the fact that where they, they say in the book, I think Tony Parker says it in, in the book, that you only had to look at Tim, you had to get a look from Tim to know what Tim was thinking. Yeah. You know, so after before reading that book, I was probably more of the traditional... Um, traditional way of thinking about captain but since reading that book I've, I've i've changed my my view on it to to be more like what what it is in the book if if you've not read it i definitely recommend it yeah it's still on my uh to, to read list like i haven't had time to read it yet but it's definitely like i need to check it out because it sounds so good so many different like That's characters it. and things like that from different sports as well i mean I stayed up last night to watch the uh, finals of the NBA and I am knackered today <laughs> talking about <laughs> basketball. <laughs> um, but in terms well, what of... Thing, what I think those guys are, they're all guys, girls, which, 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 whichever. Um, they are... I think what you're looking for in your captain is, is the person who has the biggest positive influence. So who in the group... Um, positively influences the most people and 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 and, and the right people. So, um, if you can find that person that, that kind of fits that mold, I think that's where you have um, that's where you have your captain because that's what the captain is in my in in my opinion. That's what he or she is there for to to influence the group in 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 a positive manner and in a way. That, that it affects behaviours for the sake of the team. Yeah. You know, so for example, Carlos Puyol was another one, one there where they were, Barcelona were playing, they were leading like 5-0 and um, they'd scored and, and, and the people were, were making jokes and stuff in celebration and Puyol sprints 40, 50 yards, clips everybody around the ear, tells everybody to get back in and they're 5-0 up. They're, they're yeah. gone for, I don't know whether it's Getafe or Levante, somebody, yeah. somebody like that. But that's that's the sort of, in a nutshell, what I'm saying. Somebody would see that and go, no, that's not right. That's how we want to be. Yeah. I've got to do something about that and I can do something about that. 100%. I think about influencing those characters leads on to the next thing about what personalities and characteristics you look for in a dressing room. I think you had a great answer to this uh, last time we spoke and sort of having that, that blend. I think that was uh, unbelievable. So if you could give us an insight into that, that'd be great. Yeah, sure. I, I think I think diversity is is um, is key in, in in your changing rooms. And when I mean diversity, just diversity of, of personalities. I think all the same will get you will get you one thing. Um, so having a having a mix of of personalities, I think um, allows you allows you more productive performances. And then the respect of other people's personalities within within your group is um, is one of the key elements of, of of gluing gluing that together, having that 
um, sort of unwritten rule around people that, look, he is how he is and he is how he is. And this is going to be the benefit of it. And this is going to be the negative of it because we're all going to have positive and negatives about, about our, uh, about our personality. But the reason, one of the main reasons why I think it's important is because football's complex. There's loads of variables going on. Um, there's loads of things that can happen um, quickly and, and without warning, um, either in the game or throughout a season, off the pitch, on the training pitch, on the match pitch. So I think if, if you have lots of people who are the same, they would look at complex problems in, in the same way. Yeah. Um, and, and Matthew Saeed uh, refers to this in his book, Rebel Ideas, really well. It's, yeah. it's, it's, it's where I first learned about it. So if you have people looking at the same problem the same way, you're kind of only going to get one perspective with some minor variables. Yeah. If you've got different personalities, if you've got cognitive diversity and you've got people looking at a complex problem in lots of different ways through their own lenses, you're going to get more ideas, you're going to get more suggestions, you're going to get um, probably increased mo motivation, increased cohesion with it, you're going to get um, people that that maybe step up when they don't usually step up. So you're gonna you're gonna get more um, more teamwork, more balance. I think by 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 having that. So that's why I think that that cognitive diversity is um, is really important. Yeah, no, hundred um, percent. I think that's uh, it's been a great conversation for sort of the um, academy footballer listeners. But in terms of we not only just have academy footballers listening, we also have coaches listening. So that's another reason why we wanted to get you on because um, for any coaches listening, a question I want to put to you is, um, obviously you're at a great club like Leicester City. What psychologically do you feel makes a successful coach um, If for, for any of the listeners listening? Yeah, I think um, adaptability is is probably is probably a key one. That's that's day to day and 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 in and in the games um, in terms of how that that sits on my day to day. That would be from you, you may go in best will best will in the world to have a plan for what you're going to do on the day and and get in and and the age group above need five players or the first team are taking some of their players and you look so. The ability to be to be adaptable from from a daily training perspective in terms of going from what your original plan might have been and and yeah. and coming up with an alternative or a couple of alternatives to still get the outcome and the productivity that you wanted rather than go okay well we just can't do it. Um, so day to day, obviously in the in the game in the game tactically speaks speaks for itself in terms of spotting problems um, <laughs> in the game. So adaptability and and similarly, like with the um, with the players' qualities. Um, in fact, Brendan Brendan Rogers said it uh, once before that you don't get too high with the highs and and too lows with the lows. I think if you're as the coach, I think you've got to be the sense in the nonsense sometimes, um, because you're. I see the coach just in my opinion as sort of the the regulator with things um, and say, so say in a game, you're the regulator of let's not get too ahead of ourselves. It's going well, but we might need to do this differently or let's be 
let's be mindful of this potential trip hazard and and the same right it's it's not the end of the world there's something we can do to to at least push this in a positive direction i think as coach you're you're the regulator so as the regulator of of either the emotions or the speed of what you're playing or, or what you're trying to achieve um it's important for you to be for you to be quite level and 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 quite calm and then i think by doing so when you need to kick up the gears with either your your tone or your volume um either individually or collectively i then think it gets it gets heard and makes more impact you know yeah yeah yeah, yeah. if you're if you're if you work at a constant level and then vary from that i think it makes more of an impact if you're if you're always a hundred mile an hour, then yeah, when you yeah, need yeah. to go a hundred mile an hour, is it any different to how you usually are? Mm. Or, or likewise, if you're if you're very calm and very um, uh, very quiet with your communication, when you need to be that, is it is it any different? Yeah. I, I, I swear, coaches in a sense, they're kind of like sports psychologists or like psychologists to the players, like. 100%. What, it's, it's crazy and I actually saw this when I was on placement um, at Genk uh, Philippe Clément who was a coach uh, back, back then he he was so good at that like talk knowing how to talk to like players and he would change the way he'd communicate with certain players as well yeah. just I guess it's similar to Sir Alex Ferguson as well but I feel like for me I, re- I love that I love that yeah you see you see that with that I watched Alex Ferguson uh, documentary and he, like I saw in that where he would use so many different ways of, um, do you know, like going in at half, we discussed going in at half time, like one nil down. Sometimes he'd go in and, and give the classic hair dryer treatment, but sometimes he'd go in and just let them chat between themselves. He wouldn't even go in and talk to them or he'd go in like 10 minutes after, five minutes to go and just give them a few pointers. But yeah, he'd keep the players guessing and that obviously um, resulted in, in great responses. Um, one thing I'm super interested in is, do you know when you're evolving your your, your tactics or, or trying to come up with different tactics, how do you go about doing that? Because that's something that I've struggled with or because or, or, I just, I think I'd just go with the standard, like, I don't know, like four, two, three, one and things like that. Um, do you, as a Leicester coach, have to work to a syllabus and sort of facilitate to the first team way of playing or do you have sort of flexibility over that? Yeah, there's there's flexibility um, there's flexibility with it in terms of how we work at, um, at Leicester. The idea is around um, in terms of relation to it looking like the first team. Um, the formation and shape can change, yeah. but the, but the style must be the same. Okay. So in terms of um, wanting to control the ball, wanting to control the tempo of the game, working your way up the pitch methodically rather than um, Rather than directly and uh, off a whim and 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 sort of playing the percentages and, and 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 sort of being too safe, but so the style has to be the same, but um, the the formations can change. So you can still be, for example, possession based, um, high pressing, um, penetrative passing. You can do that in four three three, three five two, three four three. The start the the, the shape might change. But the style would say the same. Yeah. So you see the difference of that. Yeah, yeah. And then the other thing at 18s football, and 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 more so at more so at youth, and maybe even maybe even younger. One of the other key variables that will that will have an impact on that is 
the players that you have available. So just my opinion, um, in terms of if, if your group for that set game, for example, has has three centre-halves or, or even four centre-halves, maybe it's worth having a look at playing three at the back to incorporate the three centre-halves and the other one maybe when he comes on, if, you, yeah. if you're rotating players around and stuff. So... So I think you do have to give a little bit of um, a little bit of leeway to the players that you've got, because I don't think, just in my own experience, I've never had too much success when you're trying to fit people in square holes. You know, plugs in yeah. square holes. I've never had much success that way. So I've always found it to be more successful um, in terms of getting what you want out of the game. Um, Performance-wise, not necessarily a result, but performance-wise, if you if you try and um, fit the shape to the players that you've got rather than fit the players to the shape. Mm. One thing I'm also interested in is um, so obviously as an 18s assistant, um, you can speak about that your time at Leicester as well as MK Dons. Um, have you ever had like a first team manager, sort of uh, like Brendan or under 23s, um, come down to you and say? This is what we're looking for in a specific position. Have you ever tried to like facilitate like a player's um, ability to what they're looking for, or does that not really happen um, in professional clubs? Yeah, yeah, definitely. In in the sense that, um, for example, that would probably make up part of um, a big part of like the players' ILPs. Okay. That, that you're working that you're working on, so that. So through their learning plans, that would probably be one of the one of the key contributing in factors. So okay. if you know that information from from the manager, the manager wants this from his strikers, his midfielders. His if you yeah. know that they have some some set sort of prerequisites and requirements, then I think it's important that you share that information with with the player. Look, we we think that you might have the potential to get across to there or to reach that level. But this is what the manager, the current manager, is going to want for you if you get to that level. So, if you've got players that have maybe gone over and trained, or they're on the verge that they might be able to go and do that, yeah. then then I think yeah, definitely you have to you have to divulge that that information because and 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 help them and help them to achieve that as well because what what you want as the as the coach is for them to be able to go over and do well and and hopefully go over and stay there, you know, or, or at least be invited back. Yeah. So I definitely think it's important to um to to take note when when that happens, when you do have um first team staff making making those comments and and uh and those those recommendations. And you you'll get you'll get an idea of of how kind of um certain and concrete they are on those things by how they by how they approach you with it yeah and if you know it's one of the one of the key priorities then then absolutely i think you have to take that on board to to help the player give the player the best possible chance when he when he goes over there yeah i think it's great having that communication from sort of the first team first team manager because it saves sometimes going out and splashing 50 mil on on a position that he wants maybe giving youth a chance and, and giving them a chance to actually figure out what the first team manager wants rather than just playing your game i think that's a it's a key thing to making it in the, in the professional game well our, our current manager couldn't 
couldn't be any couldn't be any better. Yeah. His his eyes on the academy and his um his uh track record of of helping young players progress and making them better, giving them their opportunities is amazing and it is how, how how you see in terms of if you're if you're good enough and and there's the opportunity you, you you'll get a chance you know yeah. um shout out to brendan uh yeah, <laughs> but um so back to kind of like the psychology side of football so have you had any encounter with a sports psychologist during your career as a coach yet or um more so more so since since being at leicester um yeah we have a we have a sports psychology department that's that's headed up um, by Carl Stepto, who, who obviously Ollie you know um, well, and uh, that was sort of my my um, first and biggest interaction with with, with sports psychology, um, which was which was great for me. It was always um, something that I was that I was passionate about, as, as I said before, I'm, I'm, I'm about human beings. I, I, I think that's yeah. where my, where my work is, um, is that's my role as a coach is to, is to work with human beings. Um, yeah. so I've always had that, that interest and that passion and, and, and desire to, to learn more on that. So coming into an environment that I had a psychology department, which has grown in the time that I've been here. So subsequent staff members have come in that, are, that I've learned a hell of a lot from, um yeah. and it's been it's been it's been fantastic it's it's made me uh made me a better coach for sure yeah, yeah could you can could you kind of provide us some insight on like what kind of things you've worked with uh with these sports psychologists yeah what one of the one of the main areas in terms of i've not necessarily um gone and worked on it or gone to it at a point where it's like Oh, here's this problem. Can you can you help me with it? But through conversations, maybe like about players or about scenarios in the games, um, one thing that I feel I have improved that in in uh, in direct correlation to to having a psychology department and and re the relationship with those staff is is seeing alternative perspectives, yeah. not just seeing it through through my map through through my head and and more understanding about other people in their own map. So I, the player, um, I'm a 35 year old man with, with, um, with a fiance and two kids. I look at one situation diff completely differently to a 15, 16, 17 year old boy. Yeah. You know, it's, it's, <clears throat> so it's helped me with, with understanding, um, with understanding those factors. Um, one of the other areas is around, is around goal setting. Um, until until I was at Leicester and working working with the sports psychology department and and, and having I never knew about um, the elephant spotting technique in terms of when it comes to goal setting yeah. where you, where you have the, the, the main problem and and all the departments that are sort of working with and around that player work up to that main problem or, or main performance um, driver whereas whereas times that I've been in environments before where the player would maybe have a target, but then um, that you want them to work on, but then one department would have a different target and another department would have had a different target and another one would, and it would, and it all seemed a bit disjointed and a bit um, compartmentalized rather than, look, this is what's going to get this player in the first team or 
if he doesn't develop this, it will stop him getting in the first team. How can we all work together to to help him with that? So it was great working with the psychology department from the goal setting aspect. Yeah, I think it's great sort of you having bringing this insight to sports psychology because I think often, like you said, you've not necessarily gone to a, to a sports psychologist with a problem. Um, it's more you've learned from the sports psychologist and how to interact with players and it's helped you evolve as a coach and become a better coach. And it's also not just for athletes and footballers and things like that. It also helps coaches. So yeah, for sure. Um, I think it's super important to have that sports psychology support. How much would you recommend players working with like sports psychologists um, or working on the psychological part of their game? How important do you think that is to making it to the professional game? In, integral. Yeah. Integral. integral. The reason I say in, integral is I think it I think it encompasses all the other all the other elements of, of development. So um, if I take for example like the um, the FA four corners model, technical, tactical, uh, technical, social, physical, psychological. Yeah. I actually think psychology is like the cap on the top, okay. and everything else is is, is underneath, mm. um, because if there's a if there's a physical development target or, or something to work on, there's probably a psychological reason or a psychological intervention that can help that can help with that. Yeah. All right. So somebody being unfit, there's a large element of uh, of psychological development and psychological um, requirements that are going to take that person to get fit rather than just the running. Yeah, um, 100%. same as like technical work. If somebody has poor technique, they're going to need to practice it over and over and over and over and over again. That's going to take a hell of a lot of, of concentration, commitment, resilience to mistakes, not getting it right. That moment where they do get it right and it's like that eureka moment and, and, and the yeah. motivation flowing. So I think it encompasses it encompasses all of it. So that's essentially why I'd say um, it's integral. I think I think we're moving away from the uh, the old tradition that, that that seeing the psychologist was a, was a weakness. Um, I think we can still go a little bit more, but I think we're we're really moving in the in the direction of that. And I think um, the more and more that the successful athletes and and, and coaches um, demonstrate and show that. The importance of, of psychology with them, then um, then I think that can only that can only help, and, and people see that. Look, if somebody's at the top level, um, yeah, has an eye on that and is working with an expert in that because it's not easy. It's not an easy field. It's very broad. It's very um, very variable. Yeah. Then then the more that can happen, I think the better message that sends out to our our younger players coming in the next five or ten years. You know. Yeah. And again, not not to just be that that it's a problem. You don't just go to the psychologist with a problem. Yeah. You go and speak because they're going to make you better. They make what you're already good at maybe better. I think that that's a that's another sort of indirect stigma that's maybe been attached to using psychologists and psychology in sport is that you only go there when there's an issue. Yeah. And you can actually go there when there's no issue and be even better. So, I mean, I think sports psychology, if, if you want to sort of evolve your game or even evolve as a person, I think that's how we can help you. And it's the whole reason why I got into sports psychology. The fact that it underpins everything can help you achieve those, those physical um, 
aspects, the technical aspects, like it can help you achieve those goals. Um, I think psychology is, yeah, it underpins everything. It's definitely so important. Um, but obviously we've, we've covered a lot there on, on, on um, what you expect of like coaches, uh, what you expect of academy players, but sort of to make things a bit more fun, we'll reflect on the Euros, because I feel like it's super topical at the moment. Um, that's been a lot of information right there, but sort of putting it back into a bit of a chat. Um, before we delve into the final, what do you think overall of England's performance leading up to the final? Yeah, I was um, I was pleased with with England's performance. I've, um, I think I think they've done done great. To be honest, they they yeah. reignited a little bit more um, of my passion for for the England team and, and and watching the England team. I think they play a a better style. Um, under Gareth Southgate than they have done um, in, in previous years and in previous times. Um, so I think they've done, I think they've done, done great, to be honest, to, to get to the final and be runners up. Great. And maybe as disappointing as it was, maybe the, the loss there after, after the, um, the defeat in Russia as well, there's progress. So maybe, as, as hard as it was, maybe the loss was a bit of a blessing in disguise and might well be useful for the current crop of players in terms of going to Qatar and the, and the, and the World Cup. And if somebody offered you a, a defeat in the Euro final, but then you went on to win the World Cup, I'm not, oh I don't think you get many that would turn it down. That's what France did, so who knows? Exactly, so I think it could, it could be a blessing so. in disguise. <laughs> <laughs> it says, it says the eternal optimist. <laughs> yeah. Did you think uh, going into that final that we, we were going to win? Uh, I mean, I was fully sold that it was coming home. I was, I was hopeful, but okay. if I'm really honest, without without being an Englishman, I think the best team won won the tournament. Yeah. Um, I watched I watched Italy in the first game and then in their subsequent game, always thinking. Yeah, what about when they play somebody good? What about when they come up against this? What about? And every time they 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 had the they had the solutions to the problems, and they just got better and better. And I think I think the best team won it. If my unbiased and un English view. Yeah, I think they uh, dismantled Belgium. John's Belgium uh, easily. <laughs> nah, I'm an England supporter, but when Belgium play, I'm obviously for Belgium. But one one player that really impressed me was Chiesa. I didn't really like watch him at all before this tournament and this guy is so dangerous oh my god yes, he's going to yeah. be exciting in a few years well ready now but... I thought he was great and and you, and you know the big th some of the some of the takeouts that I took from from the Euros especially um, whether this will change in the future or whether this is to this is to stay for the future the the impact of, of substitutions the timing of it who you bring on who you take off that was obviously compared to subsequent tournaments, that was one of the big differences in this tournament. Mm. And I think uh, people like Chiesa and, 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 and all the other subs, people like Grealish and the England team um, can be, can show that just the amount of impact that you can have as a substitute. So often young players will be quite disappointed when they're, when they're substitutes, maybe. And that disappointment can eat at you a little bit much, a little bit too much rather than, Okay, I've been. I've, I want to start. Everybody wants to start. Everybody wants to play every minute of every game, totally. But if you end up being the substitute, look at look at the impact. Look at the impact you can have in in the game. You can be 
it's your opportunity to potentially be the hero rather than oh, I'm on the bench or mm. you know there's, there's a different way there's a these players I think could potentially provide in a a different a different way a different viewpoint on on substitutions and and hopefully people will understand that the starting eleven starts the game and doesn't necessarily win you, win you the game so whether that changes after after COVID or in subsequent years and we go back to, to three substitutes or whatever, or whether we keep it, I think it's, it's going to be, um, it's a, it's an interesting different, different ploy and a different um, intervention that the coaches have got at that time to be able to make that many subs and have that many attackers that they can bring on, take off. I think it's, it's interesting to see how coaches use it. Yeah. It's like, we talked about the captain role. Uh, having evolved it's like now the substitution like yeah. being on the bench role is kind of switched as well I swear like is it Sirigu the second goalkeeper of Italy yeah. like apparently during the whole campaign he was so supportive like even at their camps like he apparently he was he played a huge role in the Italy's success um, okay. so it's really interesting to to hear about that yeah definitely he, he, he would have done and you hear the same with I think Steve Holland attributed some success to to Connor Cody in the England camp, never played a minute, but how he was around, around the games, how he was around training. That's exactly my point from before. You know, when you said what should training look like, well, if those players or a handful, it only takes a handful of those players who are disappointed to be to be not at it. It it has an effect on your on your training session, yeah. and those players who are then preparing to play against the best aren't training anywhere near the best and, and the jump is and the jump is too big. Yeah. I think understanding your role like is super important. I think that comes from what I see in basketball a lot and the fact that like LeBron James come out and said it that we're a team, everyone plays a role and you need to come in and, and, and play that role. Even if that you're on the bench or you're the sixth man, like come on and play your part and that's how you're going to succeed as a team. It's not just a couple of individuals who are going to win you the tournament. I think the fact that the England bench kept so positive and kept a good atmosphere around, I think helped us a lot. A lot of the time, when, like you said, when people are left on the bench, they can often become negative and the environment becomes a bit toxic. So the fact that, I mean, you look around the England camp, it just looks unbelievable to even be there. Um, Talk about making substitutions. Yeah. How do you how do you feel about uh, Gareth's substitutions? Often he left it quite late um, to make his substitutions. Do you agree with this? Obviously, you being a coach, you know more than me as a casual fan. What do you think his justification was for sort of leaving it so late? Yeah, I think in terms of the penalty takers and 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 I think overall throughout the whole tournament he left. Do you know the impacts of like? Obviously, like Grealish, come, yeah, yeah, Grealish come on and, and did make a difference, but he often left it very late until like the seventy-eight minutes before. Yeah. yeah, yeah, I think obviously each each to their each to their own with regards to uh, to how they do it. In terms of the penalty takers, I think the rationale behind the penalty takers was the fact that, and this is only through hearsay, um, that those those players were. Out of the ones who are available, I heard that England at their at their camps when they practice the penalties, they 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 keep the stats based on it, and and those players were 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 high in in, in that factor. And then when he obviously asked them, they were they were confident enough to 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 say yes. Um, so I think in that in that instance, he is the coach. Yeah. 
I can't can't do any more. I, I totally see the rationale. Um, I totally see the rationale behind it. You know, mm. um, I think what what another thing from from the Euros and and going on to um, your other point is that I think we're now seeing more coaches um, address and look at the game in more parts. What I mean by that is. Um, split the game into either thirds or quarters even. Okay. So they will set up a team that maybe they think is going to take it for 45 to 60 minutes, which might not include um, some of the flair players or, or, or the match winners or might be in a set scenario. And knowing what you're, what you're going to be up against um, as well, obviously. And then look to bring in those players who can make impacts at, at impact times. So, yeah. If you have got somebody like a Jack Realish, like a Sterling, like a Saka, to bring him on at 60 minutes, 70 minutes, is is a fantastic weapon to to have. If you if you're a fullback from the opposition team and you've been dealing with Sterling for an hour, you now get Jack Grealish. Yeah, it does. It doesn't get any easier. That's for sure. <laughs> you know? So I think lots of coaches, especially tournament wise. Um, we'll probably compartmentalise games a little bit and see them in and see them in stages. Let's get to this point by this point. Let's try and get to this point by this point, and then we can um, then we can use this weapon. Mm. Yeah, does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, yeah for sure. Um, so when you talk about selecting the penalty takers, would you have selected it the same way as Gareth in terms of training success rate? Yeah, I think so. I think yeah. if you're um, if you're going to do that in training, if you're going to uh, practice penalties and 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 have that importance on it to to stat it and and keep keep track of all those things, then if you don't then use that at the time of penalties, it's kind of like yeah, for nothing. Not, not believing in your own process. Yeah. It was they obviously felt that that was part of the process to to go and um, to go and win the game and 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 when you're in the moments, I think you've got to you've got to trust your processes. Yeah, would so you have maybe? And he obviously he sees them. He sees them more than more than anybody else. Oh, so true. Yeah, he's the best place person to to make the decision, regardless of what we think. Maybe yeah. the order was wrong. Was that you, was that what you were going to say? Oh, I got yeah, the Saka. Yeah. yeah, like putting like a young Saka, like the, the decisive penalty. Would you have done that as well? Like because he he obviously had the order, didn't he? Uh, with, the, yeah. with like a piece of paper. So would you have changed that? But but equally. The, yeah, he could have been the least fit. He could have been the least fearless. The other yeah. four might have been might have been a lot more worried than he was because he's young. Yeah, and young people have a different tolerance and and to risk. So he might well have been the most confident. Yeah, in terms of when they when they asked him, we we don't know. It's um, it's just it's difficult because we just attribute the outcome to yeah, the negative yeah, yeah. outcome yeah. to oh, he must have been. He must have been um, not confident. Yeah. He maybe just didn't execute yeah, <laughs> once, true. and he yeah. only gets one chance, one chance at it, you know. And yeah. but I've, in my experiences, I've found that the younger the players, the the less fear they have. Mm. So actually, in in that position, it, in my in my own opinion, it wouldn't cross my mind. I would actually be seeing that as a as a strength. Yeah, I think. Putting Hurricane on the first one for sure was, was a good start to get off to get off to a goal. Uh, I think Harry Maguire's was 
My word, absolutely stuck it stanch. Um, yeah. I'm, I'm not a fan of I'm not a fan of leaving your best to last when it comes to penalties. Just in just my own preference, I would okay. be I would be of that. Put Take your best ones, on. yeah. Put your best ones first. Get get money in the bank because yeah, like Ronaldo in in I can't remember the year, but the Euros that he he played in and he didn't get a chance to take the fifth penalty. Mm. Kicking himself. Yeah, 100%. Yeah, and, and, and Portugal must have been kicking himself. Have the best penalty taker there. You don't get a chance to to use him. And when the margins are so fine, I think you've got to go with your best first and work back from that, in, in my opinion. Apparently, like, the next ones were... Get, was it Grealish and uh, Pickford or something? That's what I've heard. Oh, I'd have Pickford on one. Yeah. <laughs> Definitely hit it, can't he? Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I love the players who just absolutely smash it. Yeah. Um, Vardy. I mean, I spent the whole yeah, Vardy. Oh, what a penalty taker! Yeah, yeah. Him, him and Troy Dina, best penalty takers <laughs> you could get. <laughs> um, but I spent the whole tournament sort of slating Gareth Southgate for his team selection and things like that. But by the time we got to the quarterfinal, I sort of just trusted the process and, and thought. Well, it is, it is, and it will take us to the final and hopefully it will come home. But before we move on to our last question for you, before we move into the questions from the audience, is it coming home in uh, the World Cup or not? Yeah, I think so. Honestly, I think it'll be a, I think it'll be a blessing in disguise. I think that group of players will develop so much individually and collectively over, over, the, next, <laughs> over the next year. Um, Think of all the think of all the the great players that have played that they've all lost big games. Yeah, they've all lost big games. Nobody goes through undefeated. Messi's, Ronaldo's of the world. They've all they've all lost big games and uh, and come and come back um, come back stronger and learn from it and develop from it. And and with the age of this current England group, I think they'll do the same. And and they're on as much as it didn't feel like it afterwards. Let's remember they're on a they're on a progressive. Trend. The England team went from going out to Iceland yeah. to their performance in Russia to their performance at this Euros. They're on a they're on a steep um, upward trend. It's only a, yeah. a setback to set up a comeback. That's so, someone. Uh, that's all the belief I need. <laughs> Do you think it, John? Ask, yeah. ask me. Ask me in a year's time when we're, when yeah. we're in the group or whatever. I know. I think, yeah. I think it was missing a Mason Greenwood. I think when he comes in, that's yeah. it. <laughs> it's finished. Yeah. Oh, he would have added. Yeah. We, we've just got to avoid penalties. I feel like England and penalties and the whole history, like, just got to avoid that <laughs> as best as you can. Win it in the 90 for me. Yeah. Um, so, in terms of our last question for you, before, obviously, we, we asked our audience if they've got any questions for you, so we've got a couple. But my last one is, so you've had a bunch of experience working in professional football, what are your future ambitions or aspirations as, as a coach going into the future? Yeah, my um, my end goal, um, ideally, sort of sort of dream job would be would be working as a, a first team assistant manager or first team coach at the um, at the top level Premier League, and then if if ever fortunate enough um, nationally, would would be would be amazing. So the likes of <clears throat> The likes of Chris Davis at Leicester City now, Steve Holland, Craig Shakespeare. Those are the those are the types of people whose whose careers I would like to emulate if uh, if possible. Yeah. Um, I, my my reason for that is that because a lot of people want to be the main coach, the head coach. Yeah. Um, my 
my opinion on that is is just based around a load of things. I want I want to get to that level. The drivers for me to get to that level are I want to work with that level of player um, day in day out in that pressure cooker of coming up with problems to win, coming up with solutions to problems to win games and and having to win games and and all those kinds of things. The things that I want to do at that level, I think a first team coach or an assistant still gets to do. Yeah. I think with the evolution of the the manager or the head coach, some of their some of their key roles and responsibilities are now taken so far off the grass that okay. that's not where I kind of okay. not where I want to be. Yeah. I want my skill set to be there on the grass, um, hands on. I just think as a manager in in modern day football, it's so difficult to to be able to um, to be able to do that. So that's one of the one of the main reasons. I mean, I'm, to make me a better number two, I may have to be a number one one day at, at, at some level. So I'm not, I'm not saying that it it, it won't happen or or I wouldn't do it. Mm. But I think that I would be as as part of that process to one day be a <clears throat> be a, a number two. Yeah, I just think my 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 natural skill set, as we've alluded to earlier, my my personality, I think is is better suited to being. Um, to be more around the, the glue of things rather than having to be the, the main face or, or the head decision maker. Okay. Um, I'm happy to, I'm happy to go with the plan as long as you get your input in, in the plan. I think then once you guys as a team set, set the plan as a, um, as a philosophy or what you're doing for the game, then, then you're, you're all in on it. Um, but that's where I think my skill set would have, would have the biggest impact. Um, the other, the other reasons around that, are, 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 honestly, from like a, from a life perspective, if if my mum walked down the street, she would know who Pep Guardiola was. She would know who Jose Mourinho was. She would she would know real off plenty of managers. She would never be able to know who their assistants are if she walked down the street. So I just think, in the modern hectic world of football, that's also may maybe a role where you can keep some normality in life. You can maybe go for a meal without being mobbed. You can walk down the street with, without being mobbed and questioned and followed by paparazzi. Mm. I just think the manager role, potentially, obviously, if you, if you at one of the one of the big clubs in world football, you're always in the always in the goldfish bowl, aren't you? Yeah. Well, after coming on Master in the Mind podcast, you're going to struggle with that. Um... <laughs> <laughs> no, I see yeah. they're not asleep already. No, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, no but how, a question that came up for me while she was saying that was, because I, I sort of see this in the professional game, how hard is it for you, obviously not having a playing career, for you to sort of forge your career through? Do you think that people who have had a good playing career just get a bit of a boost into into the thing or do you not think that's quite a thing because obviously Brendan Rodgers is a great example of a did he have much of a playing career not not particularly not one that he he likes to uh, he likes to allude to yeah so how do you feel about how difficult is it for you to sort of progress in your career do you think there's quite clear progression or do you think someone who's had a previous playing career could just come in and and you know take like the prioritize role? yeah 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 i think it's probably it's probably more difficult by by not having um, because I think the playing career sometimes gets you gets you the head start 
you you, you skip a couple of steps possibly yeah. by um, by having that. And that's fair enough. There's so much that um, that an ex-player can offer that somebody who hasn't played can't offer. Okay. But I don't think. I think as a coach, you can you can let it be a, a determining factor in your career rather than um, rather than getting past it and going over it and just accepting it as it's just more competition. Yeah. Um, because the reason for that being, there's plenty of people, like you said, there's plenty of examples of people who have become managers or assistant managers without a playing career. So it, so it's possible. People have done it before, and also. It may get you in the door, but I think what you what you generate hopefully throughout your career would be would be those positive relationships with existing staff, managers, technical directors, etc. And and more importantly, the players, because mm. yeah. it might get you in with the players to start with. But in the players that I've experienced, once if they feel that you're not for them or you're not about them, then what you've won previously, where you've been previously, counts counts for little quite quickly, yeah. um, because because they don't they don't see you as a fellow player anymore. They see you as a as a coach, and so now you have to have something else to offer. Yeah, you know. So I think I think it does get you a head start, but it doesn't it doesn't necessarily have to be the the be all and end all. It's just it's just more competition. No, yeah, I definitely have a. I, I personally, I just have a great respect for the people who don't have that playing career and actually make it as the first thing coach or like yourself. You go into that assistant role. I'm sure you will uh, achieve that future future ambition. Um, you, just I mean, have, you just have a different. You just have a different um, skill yeah, set and a different yeah. strong point. So, somebody who finishes their career now will have X amount of years as a playing career, but I've got 18 years coaching experience. Yeah. So in some in some scenarios in some contexts that's going to help me more than somebody with 18 years playing experience, yeah. and vice versa. Depending on the context, his previous experience might help more than more than mine. Mm. Yeah, no, for sure. Okay, um, so as you know, we uh, we asked our audience on Twitter, on Instagram, uh, on Facebook if they've got any questions for you. We've picked out the, the best couple. Um, and we'll quickly ask you. We'll go one by one. And sort of get your insight into the questions. So the first one is, who is a football coach that you look up to or aspire to sort of be like or, or base your game around? Yeah, there's a, there's a few. Um, Brendan Rodgers is, is, is one currently. As, as I said, I can't speak um, highly enough for him and, and his whole team, Chris Davis, Colo Torre, Adam Sadler. Um, they're all from a personal level, all been fantastic with me in, 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 in my time um, always being uh, open for open for conversations you can, very approachable um, so they're they're fantastic ones um, as I mentioned Chris Craig Shakespeare and Steve Holland are probably my my three big picks in terms of um, top level top level number twos um, and and my sort of fascination with with them is that They've been able to maintain their their careers, and uh, more so Steve and, and Craig, under so many different managers. Yeah, which which makes me really intrigued about how they, how they've done that. So, mm. for example, lots of managers and, and lots of coaching staff will go with one manager as he as he goes around as as, as we've seen, but 
the likes of the likes of Craig has worked under so many different managers. Steve Holland at Chelsea worked with so many different managers. Um, so they they fascinate me how their personality must have either evolved or changed or adapted to to working with the very different personalities that that they had at their clubs. So they're for me a, a sort of the idols in in my field. Okay. Okay, so the second question was, how do you deal with young players who get overconfident or arrogant? Okay. <laughs> Tough one, that is. <laughs> Be on the spot there. <laughs> yeah, no, look, there, there, are, there are lots. Um, I think the easiest way to, and the best way to deal with it is to, is like I said right at the start, treat them as, as humans first, who, who play football. Um, try and understand them. There's there's the the saying of um, connect before correct. I think I think that's so important. I don't think you can necessarily influence them in in the way that you, you'd like to influence them if if you don't connect with them, um, yeah. connect with who they are as people and what their what their goals are and what their aspirations are. Um, and I think it's it's around for me little checks on on their own goals and objectives. So for example, if they say they want to get to a certain level or want to be a certain type of player or do a certain thing, if they've, if they've alluded to you as, as that's one of their driving factors, when they fall short of that, rather than the sort of um, the, the damn them method, keep reminding them that, that are you going to achieve what you said you wanted to achieve by doing that? Because with young players, perspective is often hard to come by they just physiologically they don't have the they don't have the prefrontal cortex formed yet so they don't have that adult capability to see perspective here i am now this is what i need to achieve to do that they don't yeah. necessarily have that fully formed yet so that's where they they need our help as little reminders and, and they're only reminders because you can't you can't make someone do what they don't want to do but yeah. you can chip away and remind along for a long, long time and keep checking and keep adding balance. And hopefully they start to see that, okay, this is, is helping me with this because it's for me. It's, and, yeah. and I said, I needed to do that. And again, once you realize something yourself, you're more fulfilled, you're more motivated. And I think that's, that's probably the only way that you can. Okay. Um, and then the final one is, what advice would you give a young coach who wants to make it at the top level? Okay. Speaking um, to a young you. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Watch, watch and learn as much as possible from as many as possible um, in terms of other coaches, their sessions, their interactions, um, how they act in the media, um, their, their, their general behaviours. Note down as note down as, as much as possible. Definitely carry a notebook all the time. Um, I will still take a notebook to training if I watch the first team train. Now I will still take a notebook with me to training. Just I'd rather have it and not use it than need it and not have it. Yeah, you know. Um, and then the advice that I would have given myself is is understand human beings before before anything because. I feel that if you can understand humans, you can, you can coach. Um, yes, you have to have a, an element and a level and um, 
of, of knowledge and, and, and from football and tactical aspect and, and all that. But the way you, the way you, the biggest impact that you make as a coach, I feel just personally is through your, is through your, your human connections. Yeah. So that would be embrace psychology as early as possible. Learn as much about human beings and how they work and how they think. Um, different human beings at different ages understand the sort of the brain timeline in terms of how that works through the through the different stages. Because, yeah. as I said before, I think it's the control hub for for everything. Yeah. No. Yeah. Definitely. Great answer. Um, but they were all the questions we had for you. Thanks so much for coming on. I mean, in terms of an insight into what it's like coaching in an academy what you look for in the professional game. It's been probably one of the best podcasts in terms of information. Uh, I think in terms of academy footballers listening, academy coaches listening, even people from other sports, I think will definitely benefit from listening to this. Um, so yeah, thanks so much for coming on. I've really enjoyed it. Thank, uh, you. thank you. Thank you for having me. I appreciate the invite. It's, it's, been, it's just been an absolute pleasure. Hopefully there's, there's one or two things that, that people can... Um, can take from it and then it's useful for for their context and um, and their scenarios but now thank you for having me it's been it's been brilliant really enjoyed it you know in terms of clips i can already see the five or six that that i thought of and sort of made a note of um good luck all good luck <laughs> yeah is there any normally with the guests we sort of give them um however long they want sort of shout out anything that they've got going on or Obviously, your socials will be in the uh, the description. But anything you want to shout out or any projects you've got going on, we, we just give this sort of time to, to talk about that. No, not not particularly. Just yeah, my, my, I'm not. Uh, I've not got a huge social media game to be to be honest. Uh, yeah, it's um, it. yeah, I use it to spy on others rather than put anything out myself. To be honest, it's it, I'd use it as a as a spying tool to learn, yeah. <laughs> learn from from others really. So. Um, Follow, go, go ahead, but I probably won't post too much. Just, <laughs> yeah. um, but no, just keep a keep a lookout. Keep um, keep following yourselves. Like I've said, I've been introduced to um, to your work and and and, and this podcast. And uh, guys, keep up the good work. Yeah, no, thanks, thanks so much. Um, so, if you could please share this with your friends or someone you feel will benefit from it. Most importantly, like, subscribe, comment down below any questions you had or any guests you'd like us to get on. But other than that, thanks for listening and uh, we'll see you in the next one.